but a lot of like very left-leaning people um, who are against U.S. imperialism um, are therefore pro any country that the U.S. has a tendency or has any time condemns. I have a friend who was running for Congress in New York um, last year or this year, while well, time really flies. And because of my friendship with him, which was quite apparent on social media, they started attacking both of us a lot, like consistently, um, and saying that we were like regime uh, change activists and funded by the U.S. government, funded by the State Department, funded by the CIA. Um, and when I mean, at first I was trying to understand if they were like, you know, were, were they working with candidates that, you know, that have some kind of problems with my friend or what was going on. But I realized very quickly that they were just a part. And this is when I, my eyes opened up to this, I guess, side of the world as well of people who really see the world in black and white and really see that, um, first of all, I think what's really interesting by their approach is that they don't center their two people in the conversation at all. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahaima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world and therefore how we transform it. In this episode, I had the pleasure of breaking down the binary of neo-colonial and post-colonial with Vanessa Sahaya. Vanessa is an Eritrean human rights activist. She was born and raised in Sweden and she founded the organization One Day Sayum. She founded it when she was in high school to continue the work of her uncle, Sayum Sahaya, who was a journalist who's been imprisoned without trial in Eritrea since 2001. One Day Sayum is now one of the largest organizations of youth fighting against human rights abuses committed against the Eritrean people both in the country and after they flee. She holds a law degree from SOAS, University of London, and currently serves as Amnesty International's campaigner for the Horn of Africa. It was a really fantastic conversation as Vanessa is obviously so informed on what's going on in Eritrea and across the world. Uh, she opened up so many new lines of inquiry for a rich and challenging conversation, to be honest, as somebody who lives in the global north. How do we interact with this binary of post-colonial and neo-colonial? And how does that binary impact the ways that we glorify or condemn different nations around the world? I hope you enjoy this episode. Do let us know how you find it online. So today I'm joined by Vanessa Sahaya in the uh, fake studio that we have online. How are you doing, <laughs> Vanessa? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for putting up with all the technical difficulties we've had today. Um, I'm really excited to have you here. This is season two of Breaking Binaries. And we've been talking about doing an episode for quite some time because of the work that you do. And I think before we introduce the binaries today, it might just be useful for you to tell us a bit about the work that you do. You're an activist, you're a campaigner, you're an advocate. Um, Maybe that will inform a bit about where you're coming from in this conversation. Absolutely. So I have been running an organization called One Day Seum for the past, at this point, seven years um, that 
in essence, advocates for uh, the freedom of Eritrean people. So Eritrea, for those who don't know, is a country in the Horn of Africa that's been under, you know, the rule of the same person since 1991, pretty much since Eritrea got uh, independence from Ethiopia. And there's no constitution that's been implemented since, you know, this entire period. Instead, people uh, are kind of ruled by this arbitrary uh, kind of sets of uh, rules set by the government um, that has no logic or um, no kind of legal Standing, So people are forced to work in indefinite national service uh, without adequate pay and with under like terrible conditions. People get in prison without a trial simply for expressing their opinions, practicing their own religion um, or just like, you know, maybe thinking about opposing the government and then they get in prison for a bit just to deter them. So that's the kind of conditions that the people of Eritrea are living under. And my engagement for this came from my uncle being a journalist who was imprisoned in 2001, um, which was pretty much when Eritrea transitioned from this um, country that people thought was going to become a democracy after independence. And that was really what set this into kind of permanency was the fact that they shut down the free press, imprisoned the most prominent journalists and politicians, and then, uh, you know, shut down the parliament, canceled the elections and pretty much became this dictatorship we know today. So that's where... Um, my engagement started and that's where my uh, kind of passion is rooted and that's where uh, my work uh, began. That's really helpful because I think what you've even just said there about this transition that occurred into this kind of movement from what was supposed to be a democracy uh, to very kind of highly, obviously explicit, I guess, dictatorship or authoritarian state, um, situates this binary really well. So today, what we decided we would try to break apart is the binary of post-colonial and neo-colonial. And I think those words can sound quite like big and a bit jargony. Um, so maybe to begin with, you can tell us a bit about, you know, what what do these concepts allude to? What were people talking about when they're talking about either of these things? And then I think we'll, after that, we'll bring it to the context in Eritrea, um, if that's all right. Absolutely. So I think in an academic kind of context, there's a lot that can be said about both these uh, terms. And there's a lot of literature, a lot of like important people who said a lot of things. But I think in the context of this conversation, and I think where it matters the most to me and why I'm so passionate about this <laughs> false binary, is just in the everyday usage um, of these terms. So post- post-colonial for me means uh, moving past the colonial rule of like West controls um, the global South, or, um, you know, we've like both in an economical sense, but also like in general, like geopolitics, um, power, um, you know, that we're past the fact that um, the West has like, is the dominant factor and they control us. We are not our own subjects. We control ourselves. Um, and so literally not... post-colonial. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I guess neo-colonial is just a continuation of, of those uh, structures. But what people usually refer to when speaking about neo-colonial is just the uh, I'm very much economical sense. So um, like the continuation of, you know, the same kind of countries controlling your uh, African or other like continents or countries, um, lands or politics, or um, even a lot of times like language and the way we speak about, um, I guess, our countries and our leaders can be considered neocolonial as well. Um, so I think it's, it is, and when you put it like that, it is very clearly a binary, like either you're, you've moved on from colonial times or you're continuing them. Um, and a lot of times what happens with neocolonial is that um, they call it like, they have African, in, in this context, like African or I guess non-white um, leaders, but continuation of the same policies. So I guess that's how you could. Right. And so in that binary, then I guess the opposition is also to do with 
um, not only, I guess, the type of governance, but as you said, this alludes to like the kind of economy and the kind of structure of the country. And I think even just thinking about, um, I guess, a lot of independence movements across different colonies of, of Europe, there was always, it, from at least from the kind of context I know about, there's always this kind of idea that once the colonizer is gone, you know, we will have true autonomy, um, self-determination, like these things are all really important. But actually, I think in the context, I'm, you know, even just hearing what you're saying, very quickly and very often, we know that things like military dictatorships, for example, in Pakistan, if we think about that context, or in across like North Africa and the Middle East, like there's a real tendency for it to seem that the only way for control to be able to be maintained, and this is kind of justification, is through um, dictatorships. So I'm interested in how quickly those transitions happen. Um, and also, I think one question I have here is the difference between, okay, so an internal dictatorship, um, but being kind of seen as, well, that's still better than a colonial occupation, right? And I wonder if that's sort of at the heart of of what you're talking about here. Maybe you can tell us about how Eritrea is discussed within this binary, like where, where does it crop up and how are these conversations had? Absolutely. Um, so in the Eritrean context, it's, I find it uh, quite fascinating because I've mostly followed this debate in the Eritrean context. And that's what really made me, again, very, very passionate about it. Um, because Eritrea became independent um, in 1991 after fighting for independence from Ethiopia for 30 years. And just to give a tiny bit of Eritrean history, um, Eritrea was colonized by Italy um, and eventually Italy lost Eritrea as a colony due to you know, the Second World War. After that, it was a British protectorate and uh, they had to decide what to do with Eritrea. And due to, um, you know, I guess, neo-colonial or I guess at that point, colonial structures, um, they wanted to award Ethiopia for their support in the Second World War. So the US, um, the United Kingdom and the UN that was newly formed decided to award Eritrea to Ethiopia. And what happened then was that Eritrea, it was a, it was support, supposed to be um, a, a part of the federation. So Ethiopia was supposed to be like semi-autonomous, um, but this was violated from day one. And that was why Eritrea, like, you know, rised up and fought for independence for 30 years. And in those 30 years, Ethiopia was supported first um, by the U.S. And then when they moved sides in the Cold War, because they changed leaders and they became a communist country, they received support from the Soviet Union. And in that entire period, Eritrea received support from pretty much no one, just by the diaspora. So it was a very like small group of people, I mean, relatively com- compared to Ethiopia, a small group of people fighting, um, supported by themselves, the people who migrated, one third of the population fled the country, and a lot of them supported the, the people fighting back home. So the, the Eritrean struggle from day one was always very um, lonely. It was fought by us, uh, you know, supported by us, um, you know, ignored by the rest of the world. So it was a very much like us against the world mentality. And when then Eritrea gained independence, um, a huge part of the sentiment was like, we did it against all odds, like we did it alone. Um, and what continued then was that the regime started saying that we are self-reliant. We don't need anyone else. This is our country. This is Eritrea. You know, this is our land. Um, we fought it. Fought, we fought for it. We're not going to let anyone buy it. Um so there's been other like land disputes with Ethiopia since then that has like played a really big part in Eritrean politics. We might get into that a bit later because it's not as relevant in this part of the discussion. But land and like ownership has always been really important in the Eritrean context. Um, and what happened very early on was again the fact that they were said this is our country, um, and pretty much what happened very very early on. I mean, this like in the first ten years was that people um, started being sent to this military national service camp where they started working um and 
what has happened since then is that we have a massive national national service um, kind of population where almost the entire population is working for the government um, indefinitely without adequate pay under ter- like horrific um, conditions. So just and, for those of us who don't know what national service necessarily yes. means, is that is it always military or is that just anything? So, okay, that's a good question. So what Eritrea has is a system where young people, so people in their final year of high school, are all have to do mandatory um, kind of military SAWA service is what they call it. So it's your final year of high school. Um, it's 18 months is spent in SAWA, in this military camp far away from your house. It's a, I mean, depending on where you live, of course, but it's like a remote area. That's compulsory. And if uh, if you want to do anything in Eritrea, if you want to have the right to move freely, you have to have proof that you've completed SAWA. Um, so, like, you have no right to do anything. You, have, you pretty much have to hide unless you've done it and you go to prison. So that's why a lot of people flee the country as well um, in terms of, like, before they have to do SAWA. But most people do SAWA. That's, like, I mean, at that point, because you're so young when you have to do it, it's too early for most people to flee. But a lot of young people, a lot of children flee before. Um, and then when you've completed SAWA, you have the option to... Um, go to um like so basically sorry this is mixing a lot of things but the university in Eritrea they had one university called Asma University was shut down um so what they implemented instead or what they kind of started instead was uh technical colleges across the country that were um you know a, a completely different kind of quality of education most of the professors in the country had fled the country at that point because you know because of the suppression and all of that so a lot of the people who were working in the in the colleges and in the high schools across the country were national service conscripts so the quality of education was really bad the ability to access at these kind of um you know educational um places where it's really difficult as well because you have to score really high and when you do score that high in your test at the end of your high school education they tell you what to study so you don't have the choice to study what you want to study um places are limited you know there's no uh the kind of educations that are provided is very limited as well um so with this being said after you finish uh sawa you have the option to either do that which is extremely difficult or you become a national service conscript. So pretty much everyone um, under the age of like 65 or something like that is a national service conscript, unless you run like your own uh, business, which is very uncommon as well. So that means you'll be working for the government? That any kind of job. So that's a very complicated answer to your first question is, is that um, once you enter national service, you never leave. Like it's, it's, it's described as, um, indefinite national service because it truly is indefinite um you enter and you're there i mean i've i don't think i've ever heard of anyone being uh, left out from national service but obviously it has happened once in a while but it's something that you enter to probably never leave um your salary is extremely low um yeah so you can you can be a national service conscript and work as a professor at university or sorry at the technical colleges or as a mine worker or as a construction worker or as someone cleaning the streets you can be placed in any kind of service um because the government decides they decide where you go so a lot of people are sent far away from their families um you decide they decide what you do it can be completely separate from what you want to do in life which is mostly the case um and this is the eritrean working force this is these are the people that sustain the idea of self-reliance in eritrea so the reason why eritrea is able to function the way that they do is because everyone's working pretty much for free indefinitely uh, under you know the, the standards and the conditions set by the regime. Well, and and it sounds like also after you've kind of been through almost like this propaganda experience as well of kind of very much 
I don't know, working for the state and then that being the only way you can live. I'm wondering though, what hearing you say all of that, I mean, there are certain words and labels that come to mind about what you might name this kind of state, but what, how does Eritrea present itself? Like what form of government or state would it call itself to be? Do they say that they're a post-colonial state? Is that part of the problem that they're kind of posturing as a, I don't know, democratic socialist? How do they um, kind of present themselves? I've had a lot of conversations about this this week um, because I don't know if you heard about Clubhouse. It's this like audio app where people are just discussing stuff. Um, and there was a lot of discussions between people who were like trying to understand Eritrea. And I just urge everyone to listen and to listen to what the Eritrean regime says himself, about themselves and what they do. Like judge them by their words and their actions. The Eritrean regime very rarely describe themselves as anything. They very rarely try to make the case for themselves in terms of like, um, we are socialist or we are this. That's something that other people, you know, put on them. And that's a part of the problem that I'm having with this binary. Um, they very rarely try to make that justification. However, what they do say is self-reliance is something that they love. It's one of their favorite words. Um, self-reliance and also uh, defending themselves from the enemy, which is a different uh, discussion as well um, in terms of that land discussion that I was men- mentioning earlier with the bordering um, country Ethiopia. So like another aspect that I just wanted to add in terms, in addition to the free labor that they're getting from the people, um, is also the fact that Eritrea is not self-reliant. Eritrea receives uh, a lot of aid. Eritrea has a lot of um, deals with foreign governments, uh, you know, with Saudi, the UAE, with Australia, with Canada, with China. Um, they, so the, even like beyond the obvious fact that they're using the people the people's labor for free and they're exploiting their own people for, to have this idea of self-reliance. Um, they're also lying about it. So like it's, it's, uh, it's both, I think from both angles, it's really bad put together. It's, it's you know, it's hilarious that people are still buying it. Um, That's really interesting. So would you say, so p- pulling that back then to this binary of post-colonial and neo-colonial, it sounds to me that the Eritrean state is presenting itself very much as post-colonial. That's you know that narrative of self-reliance. That, I think that's everything that you know everybody has been dreaming for, right? Like you've been occupied, you've had all these different wars going on, and finally, you know, you are running the show yourself. And so I'm wondering, you know, it's very it's very obvious, I guess, in, from what you've just said, that actually self-reliance hasn't meant self-reliance for, for both those kind of angles, but also, um, I, I guess. There's another element here as well, which is that that language justifies, it sounds like, this regime itself. And so is that maybe one of the ways we can begin to break down this binary? Or what for you is the central sort of assumption that that we can begin to, you know, untangle this this notion of neocolonial versus postcolonial? The main problem, I think, when we talk about this binary, it's not about the issues or like, you know, who's being oppressed. It's about who is oppressing. Um, and I feel like that's one of the biggest issues in this binary is that people talk about, you know, uh, colonial oppression versus non-colonial oppression. But then people are very little focusing on like, OK, people are still being oppressed, though. So like maybe we have other issues, maybe the West can oppress, but also other people can oppress or maybe the West can oppress and um, these people can continue their oppression in different ways and different methods. But nevertheless the people are still suffering in different ways um and i think it's you know we also have this again the idea that people really value the fact that eritrea is our land now so that's people say like at least we have our own land back um but you know the focus is less put then on like but what about the people's experiences because at the end of the day like if you're looking at theories if you're looking at um 
you know, all these different comparative analysis of like colonial times versus this times. At the end of the day, you have to look at the people's experiences because that's the only thing that matters. That's why we fought for the land was because Ethiopia refused to respect our autonomy and respect our people's rights. Um, Eritreans were suffering in a way that they didn't have to if they were living under their own rule. Um, and that's why they fought for independence, not because they thought the reverse looked better on one side of the country or not. Um, so, yeah, I find that like interesting in terms of, um, you know, that's one of the biggest problems, just focusing on who is doing the oppression. And regardless of, and then the answer to that is like, okay, then it's fine. If it's, oh, okay, it's a black person, it's an African person doing it, then we don't care. And I think that really played a part even in Eritrea Ethiopia independence wars. Like people didn't really care in the same extent because it was a, an Ethiopian government and an African government that was oppressing another African government. And that didn't have the same ring to it as like the South African government oppressing um, black people in South Africa or independence wars in other African countries against their white masters. Yeah, you mean like an international context, right? In terms of the attention given. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think to be honest, like... Um, before I knew you and the work that you did, like Eritrea is not really anywhere I feel that is on the radar for people to to think about or to kind of question. And um, I think it is really interesting what you're raising, this idea of nuancing um, the notion that like colonial equals bad and then post-colonial or anti-colonial regimes that grow out of that equals good. Because I think it's just really, it's, it's very obvious, but very important what you've raised about, okay, but what about the people? And so this raises really the question, I guess, of, of autonomy. So who, you know, this hasn't really led to self-autonomy, to self-determination. And it reminds me just to kind of, you know, in case this adds anything, it reminds me of um, some of the conversations around Kashmir and the way that, um, you know, lots of people obviously oppose the Indian occupation of Kashmir. There's been this blackout for years. There's so much violence that we do and don't see. But sometimes I see this um, rhetoric from um, Pakistanis, particularly I would say in the diaspora, but also not in diaspora, who kind of say that, you know, we, you know, we want to liberate Kashmir by um, having it as part of the Pakistani nation state. And I think this is a really problematic narrative because at the same hand as kind of talking about liberation, it immediately says, ah, but you'll become part of our nation state. That's, you know, we we will decide for you what is best um, for the people of Kashmir. And I think the re- reason I raise that is because it's this question of autonomy that I feel like is at the heart of what you're talking about. And I wonder, you know, what are the conversations that are had? You know, what is it that, you know, is there a conversation about what Eritrean people want to see? And, you know, is it as simple as ending oppression, you know, kind of by any means necessary? What what does that look like? And what's the work that you're doing there? Well, yeah, that's a very good question because we have another thing of, uh, like, as I said, during the War of Independence, one third of the population fled the country or left the country um and a lot of us born in the diaspora are the children of those people so like i was born in sweden um and we have a massive diaspora because one third of the population um is a big part of the population everyone had kids most of them at least um and then what's happened since then this is how you can i would like like i like to divide up the European population and i think it really matters in terms of discussing our politics because we have those who left during that period during between the 60s and the I guess, late 80s, early 90s, um, and then the people who were like, born out of from them, so like people like myself, um, and then people who started fleeing um, after the, the dictatorship in Eritrea started. So like these people who started fleeing after the Eritrean dictatorship started, they're a completely different set of Eritreans than from where I am because I have never lived in Eritrea. I've never firsthand experienced anything uh, from the Eritrean government. Um, my entire understanding of the country my entire like you know relationship with the country is from a distance it's from secondhand experiences whereas the people who have fled um have experiences firsthand so 
that also ties us back to the fact, what is the Eritrean regime support system? Um, and this is where this binary for me became evident, is that a lot of people born in the diaspora with complicated relationships with their home country, with their countries they were born in, so obviously people living in like uh, racist or oppressive societies in the West, um, starting having a, like worse understanding, which is quite very understandable, of uh, their country. So like people born in the UK, people born in the US, people born in Sweden, across Europe. Um, and through that understanding, really easily fed into the self-reliance uh, argument given by the Eritrean gov- regime. Um, and through that became a new support system for the regime. So a lot of people who left during the War of Independence never lived in Eritrea after uh, independence. And a lot of them still value and love the Eritrean gov- president because he's the one who led the fight for independence for us. And even though, you know, he was a leader with, amongst many other leaders, amongst many other fighters, but he's the one who was personified as like the, the cap, you know, the, the father of Eritrea. Um, and because of that, a lot of them support him for emotional reasons. Then you have um, the other set of people like myself who then have completely fed into this argument, sorry, who have completely bought into this argument that um, Eritrea is a self-reliant country. And uh, because of, again, our experiences here, we then see the the kind of damage that, that our governments do both domestically to people like us and to other people like us in other countries, in our home countries. Um, and that's the first time that I started seeing uh, this, how this argument was used by people who support the government um, in the West. And back to your question is that people who are from Eritrea, I've never met someone who said, oh, self-reliance is great. You know, we hate the West so much. It was so worth being in definite national service because our hatred for the West was so strong. Um, So the people of Eritrea, I've, again, like there's obviously people, a lot some people who support the government who fled Eritrea. Um, and that's, for me, a completely different, different conversation because you can still experience the trauma without understanding the root of the trauma. Like some people thought it was because self-defense reasons against the TPLF and Ethiopia or other reasons. But a majority of the people um, are tired of Eritrea's um, governance. They're tired of the regime, of the dictator, and by this false self-reliance um, kind of argument. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, and I'm interested, actually, in what you said about the almost like the cult of personality as well and how I think we've mentioned this before when we spoke before podcast that this also I guess plays somewhat into that upholding that binary um and you know this is something I think we see across a lot of post-colonial nations where leaders um kind of become revered even really problematic leaders you know like um Saddam Hussein becomes like we, we can't have a really nuanced conversation about the fact that you know he was upholding all this violence you know massacring um Kurds and, and Shias but at the same time, and the reason we can't have that nuanced conversation is because it's like either he was against the US or he was, uh, you know, and, and this bulwark against colonialism, or he wasn't. And I think those nuances become easily hidden behind cult of personality. And it sounds like that's something that, that is true here. No, absolutely. Um, and I think, obviously, again, like we're just going back to the fact that people should be at the core of all discussions on uh, governance methods or types is the fact that people then can start talking about like greater ideas such as, um, you know, but he is such a great leader. But then if you always bring the caveat of like, so what about the people that obviously those kind of things become less relevant. Um, and I think just to, again, emphasize the fact that I think the binary is false because it's not like both one is good, one is bad. Um, in that sense, I just think that we just have to always look at how the like how the people are doing, and I think in any neo-colonial setting, the people are doing bad. Like I, I just want to emphasize, I'm not saying like they're both like they both good and bad. Like 
I definitely think that obviously neocolonial structures are terrible. Colonialism was terrible. Like that's just like, I don't know if that goes without saying, but <laughs> if anyone listening, <laughs> if anyone listening, because again, like I'm just saying the only thing that we should be looking at is the quality of life for the people. And obviously during colonialism, the people were doing terribly. They were not sub- like, they were not, had no control of their own lives. They were subject of like foreign regimes, um, and then what I'm trying to say is that just because something is post-colonial doesn't mean that that structure completely changed. But hearing you talk, you're talking about like Eritrean people should be at the centre of conversations about Eritrea. And that sounds really reasonable to me. Like I'm really buying into that right now. But I noticed that you get attacked a lot by people um, in the Eritrean diaspora, I think a lot in the US as well. And I'm wondering what what are those attacks about? You know, these are people on the left. What Why are they kind of... What's at the heart of the kind of conversation there? What what are you being accused of? Well, that's a really good question because I think it really ties into what uh, this whole, again, false binary is about and why uh, it's really like ruining the discourse on Eritrea right now. Um, I think, first of all, it's not just the Eritrean diaspora and that's where uh, my kind of anger <laughs> became the worst is that a lot of people in the US who are considered uh, to be like, I guess like, I don't know how big this group of people are, but a lot of like very left-leaning people um, who are against U.S. imperialism um, are therefore pro any country that the U.S. has a tendency or has any time not try like not uh, condemned. So, or condemned. Sorry. So I like I have a friend who was running for Congress in New York um, last year or this year. Wow, time really flies. And because of my friendship with him, which was quite apparent on social media, they started attacking both of us a lot, like consistently um, and saying that we were like regime uh, change activists and funded by the U.S. government, funded by the State Department, funded by the CIA. Um, And when, I mean, at first I was trying to understand if they were like, you know, were were they working with candidates that, you know, that have some kind of problems with my friend or what was going on. But I realized very quickly that they were just a part. And this is when my eyes opened up to this, I guess, side of the world as well, of people who really see the world in black and white and really see that, um, first of all, I think what's really interesting by their approach is that they don't center their two people in the conversation at all. It's just about, um, the, the U.S. is what's at, at the, like the center of the conversations and their op- opinions. And whatever the U.S. does, they'll be on the other side of it. Um, and the, the realities of the people really don't matter. And this is where the binary is like the most evident. Yeah, so it's just about like, oh, the U.S. doesn't like um, Qaddafi. That means Qaddafi was a great leader. Oh, the U.S. doesn't like Saddam Hussein. That means Saddam was doing amazing work in <laughs> Iraq. Like that's the, lit- the literal approach of their of their um, kind of understanding of the situation. And when you do say, yes, there are also people there to diaspora who completely believe this, who also attack him for this. But what I found the most interesting is that non-Eritreans were doing this. And we have this like, policy forum last week that I it was really late in the in Europe so I didn't attend it but they invited this guy who has been like continuously um harassing me on social media um to this really like high profile leftist think tank to speak about um Eritrea and in a room and this is what my friends who were there described was like really scary because the way he spoke about Eritrea was as it's like again post-colonial anti-west anti-us uh de- defying all odds kind of country and people were buying into it um and I think what's important there again is that People like to copy paste. And that's, this is where the problem comes in again between having a binary is that you have one set of rules and then just like anything else is the opposite. Um, 
And what people say, uh, again, is like, oh, but you are a part of the Eritrean bourgeoisie, which means that you are not looking after the interests of the working class people of Eritrea, because that works in so many other countries. That is probably the case in so many countries that there is a bourgeoisie or upper middle, upper middle class that is speaking out on behalf of the people in the country, pretending that their struggles are, you know, not relevant just to maintain their economic status quo or social, you know, status quo in the country. But that doesn't work in Eritrea because, first of all, I'm not in Eritrea. I'm not saying I'm an Eritrean experience of these issues. And every single person in Eritrea is pretty much everyone is living on the same wage on the same government. Um, like even class systems, pretty, I mean, it's like that whole set of logic doesn't exist, but they're just copy pasting it um, to apply to any country that the U S seems to doesn't like. So for me, that's one of the issues that I realized uh, in the beginning that I was like, shit, they're first of all, they're just copy pasting um, to fit their ideology, to fit their theory that they've been reading in books in their office in New York. Um, and they're really not looking at the lived experience of the people because like you can, the, uh, the US first of all should not be a guidance of their morals because that just like puts them, you know, they make that makes them like pretty much their enemy. They're just looking at whatever they're saying is bad is, and then that's good or whatever they're saying is good is get bad. Um, but they're refusing to look at the experience of the people, which makes them no better than anyone else. Yeah, I think that's such an important um, thing to highlight because we see this, it, I think, you know, what does it mean for conversations about liberation and justice if we aren't able to have nuanced conversations? And I think that's such a crucial part of anything is to root it in what you're talking about, material conditions, if you're being, if you're materially day-to-day being paid a really low wage to do something that you don't want to do, if you're censored, if you can't resist, if you can't process your grievances, if you don't have recourse to justice, I mean, though, as you say, that's that's really where the conversation should start, not who is doing it. I think the question of who is doing it becomes important in terms of how you tackle it. But as you say, it's being used to, it's being weaponized, I guess, to actually maintain a silence on Eritrea. Um, and, you know, I think there's been similar debates over obviously the last decade about, around Syria. And, you know, people, you ha- you do have this big group of the left in the West, in the UK um, and other places who um, are, you know, really pro-Assadists because, purely because of, you know, the, the, the idea of like imperialism and, and anti-imperialism. So, and, and yeah, and, and to the, exp- the expense of Syrian people um, and people who experience the violence of the state. So, I think on that note, something I wanted to ask you about is, is do, do you think there's something, there's some investment or some erasure that it deliberately exists amongst the international community when it comes to Eritrea? And, and how might we understand that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Again, all your questions are amazing. <laughs> um, but I think also just like continuing off the last answer I was giving, they're saying that the US loves, you know, uh, the opposition movement, they hate their Eritrean government. That again, is not very true either. Like, the U.S. government's uh, priority is um, stability in the region. So the, they were, when Eritrean Ethiopia became friends after a long time of uh, the land dispute, like the U.S. was at the forefront of supporting that initiative. Um, the the West, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the world and the international community as a whole has never been like, you know, massive fans of removing the dictatorship from Eritrea. That's never been a priority. It's nothing they're against. This is not something, this is not, Eritrea, again, it's not a controversial issue in that sense. It's nothing that anyone is like very, like, you know, this, no one's super against it um, existing as a dictatorship. You know, they don't mind it continuing and they don't also mind people um, opposing it. It's, you know, so it's obviously there's Eritreans, Eritrean groups who have had, you know, like, you know, support by the US government in different ways, like capacity building and stuff like that. But there's never been like, you know, you like, it's not, it's, it is not Libya. It is not Syria. So it's, it's, it's just a country that no one really cares about. 
So when we're thinking about neocolonialism, I guess the other thing that comes to play is like the relationship to other states. And you mentioned earlier that actually Eritrea is not self-reliant. And so I'm wondering, you know, what those relationships are with other nations, what that looks like. Yeah, I think actually one of the things that uh, I wish that these people who were like attacking us, if they were actually to listen, is the fact that the EU has been funding Eritrea for a very long time. Like the EU has been sending massive aid packages to Eritrea um, for as long as I can remember, at least. And what's interesting about those aid packages is that they're rooted in a in a desperation to uh, combat migration from the Eritrea. Like there's a lot of Eritreans uh, fleeing because of the dictatorship. And what the Eritrean regime says is that these people are economic migrants who are fleeing because Eritrea is a poor country. Um, and the way that you solve poverty is by giving aid packages, which is, you know, at the root of, <laughs> at the root of the whole, I guess, anti, uh, po- I mean, this is what post colonialism should be all about. It's like, no, you don't, you don't solve these problems with giving like false money that sustains dictatorships that continues oppression. You look at the root causes and the root causes in Eritrea is not necessarily that people are poor because of uh, international economic systems, which might also be the case in the future in terms of like when you have the right kind of governance. But right now the problem is the fact that people are not allowed to work. Um, with getting, you know, by, and having an adequate um, compensation. Um, the conditions are terrible. People are literally getting imprisoned without a trial. Um, people have no future. They have no presence because their presence belongs to the government. That's the root causes of people fleeing. Um, and by giving the government money, you're allowing them to continue. Actually, by giving it the government money without any kind of standards to what they should be using that money for, that's when you are enabling the dictation to continue. And you are saying, without saying it on paper, that please do whatever you want with this money, just make sure people are not leaving the country. So, that's so interesting. No, I was going to say, that. I mean, that is literally the West controlling what's going on in Eritrea for their own interest. And that, for me, is neocolonialism. That, for me, is a continuation of um, Western kind of dominance in the region to decide to control what goes on there. Uh, in their own interest. Because if they wanted to do it in the interest of the European people, A, they would have opened up, they would have opened up uh, safe routes to Europe, if that was the case. Um, they would have allowed Eritreans to, um, you know, have kind of like access to justice in different ways and help them uh, get, you know, safety and whatever when they come here. But instead, they not, not, not only fund the Eritrean regime to make sure that they don't leave the country, but they also fund uh, Libyan militias and they fund coast guards and they implement new coast guards in Europe to make it as difficult as possible for these people to reach safety uh, in Europe. So it's like, it's very clear intentions behind uh, their work. And this is not being highlighted because it doesn't fit into the narrative because it's like, what a socialist, you know, so-called socialist country. I mean, it was a socialist movement back in the, in, during independence movement it hasn't been implemented into policy. So I don't know why they're still being labeled as that, but that's how they are labeled. Um, and, but they're also get taking money from, you know, not only the EU, but they're also taking money from Australia, from China, from uh, the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, from Canadian companies. That doesn't work out. Let's just ignore the rest and let's just focus on the first part because that fits our narrative, that fits our ideology and that fits our theories. That's so powerful because I think actually that really, for me, that's like hit at the heart of why I've never heard about Eritrea because really... I can see now that there's a, I think it's really important what you, you kind of reframed as well, or kind of reminded us that neocolonialism isn't purely, um, you know, direct economic investment in a country or, you know, direct, um, you know, like the CIA running your government. It can also be, as you said, this really insidious, I suppose, investment in maintaining the conditions of repression uh, of whatever violence exists in that state for the benefit of locking out people who would seek asylum in your countries from accessing the resources that actually rightfully, you know, belong to the rest of the world that you looted. And I think that's, that's really vital as people who are situated in Europe to think about, because 
I guess what it poses, poses the question to me of like, okay, so if we were to talk about Eritrea, if we were to criticize the Eritrean state, if we were to say what Eritrean people need, you know, um, how can we hold anybody to account for what, you know, people like your uncle experience, then I think suddenly we would be threatening not only the Eritrean state, but we'd be threatening that entire, you know, border Europe, that like fortress of, of kind of violence. And I think that's really interesting connection. And it also suggests to me that the people on the left that you're talking about in the US, you know, particularly people who are not Eritrean, for, for them to be um, kind of condemning these conversations, I think also speaks a lot to not only what you're saying about them being kind of di- divorced from practice uh, or praxis and grassroots, but also about their investments in the status quo. And I think that's something that we, you know, those kinds of nuances and those connections are completely erased by this binary. And it, it kind of links actually to Another thing that I wanted to ask you was, um, I see you talking quite a lot about, um, and being abused quite a lot about, um, the Eritrea and Ethiopia peace agreement. Um, would you mind telling us a bit about that and maybe why it's important for us to have it in this conversation? Mm. So after Eritrea gained independence, um, in the first like 10 years, things were, or in the, I guess first six years, things were looking quite good with our neighboring country. The both so they were both independent movements in both in Ethiopia and Eritrea who were like incorporating doing the war. So when Eritrea gained independence, that other like movement um in Ethiopia gained power. So they were both new governments at the time. Um and they were friends. They were had they were considered like brothers at war or whatever. And then nineteen um 98, there was a border dispute that led to like a two-year really bloody um, war. And after this war ended, Ethiopia refused to withdraw its troops from Eritrean land. This land had been awarded to them by like a UN uh, appointed commission, etc. So it was, everyone kind of knew that it was Eritrea's, um, right, Eritrea was rightful in this dispute in terms of land. But because of Ethiopia standing internationally, um, this led to like Eritrea's uh, kind of being frozen out from the international community. So the Eritrean regime actually used the border dispute with Ethiopia as a justification for their rule. Um, you know, even national service, uh, military service, sorry, was justified by this. Not necessarily national service and the whole self-reliant move. idea that was a bit separate, like the whole idea of self-reliance. It's not because of the border dispute, by, but like violations of political rights and um you know, the idea of the shutdown of the free press, the failure to implement the constitution, the cancellation of elections, the failure to open up the parliament again after the war. All these things were attributed to the fact that Eritrea was, quote unquote, at war at any time they could be invaded. And therefore they had to have an active army. They had to have, um, they couldn't allow for, you know, opposition within the country. They had to be united and in, in, against their common, against this like foreign enemy. Um, so that was always like the, the justification for um, the status quo in Eritrea. However, as many advocates could see, like it was completely disproportionate. So I always talk about like, you know, the fact that the US obviously had 9-11, but then the response was disproportionate, even though there was a, an emergency that happened to them. But then the, the way they responded was disproportionate to that um, and wasn't in, in line with international human rights law because there are actually laws that says how much you can respond. Like you, obviously you can defend yourself, but there's definitely limits to how, how much and what you do. And that's what the Eritrean re- regime has done without um, legal footing. So they have never declared a state of emergency. They've never tried to like justify anything that they've done to their actual domestic or international laws. And I always say that's because there's no way they could have done that. Like, there's just no way they could have found any laws, domestic or otherwise, that would have justified their level of violence that they've imposed on their people as a result of this 
quote unquote war um, because it wasn't they what happened after 2000 was that it was a no war no peace situation so it was like the border was militarized but there wasn't an active conflict um which made it very difficult to justify these things but a lot of people still obviously got into it and a bit i think a, an interesting point here is that um the circumstances of the European people since 1998 you know throughout the war and afterwards remained the same till this day 2020 soon getting into 2021 and the in 2018 the leadership in ethiopia changed so the people that eritrea the eritrean regime had been um fighting with uh were removed from power so obviously when the new people came to power they ended up becoming really good friends and especially because the people who came to power in ethiopia um also had an enemy in the former uh, leaders so that just became them uniting against a common enemy and they declared peace everyone across the world was saying wow this is incredible there's finally peace in eritrea uh you know because of the conflict they've been experiencing such trauma and violence and not saying that this is this proportionate measure and this is just used as an excuse um and this was in 2018 um, and the government, again, going back to the fact that we can only judge a government by what they do and what they say, they never said they were going to change anything and they never changed anything. And despite that, governments, institutions, um, organizations across the world were like, this is incredible. We're finally moving towards peace in Eritrea. This is great. We're going to be great for the Eritrean people. Um, and because of their friendship with Ethiopia, this isolation that they had experienced before, sanctions, for example, that were actually imposed, not because of the human rights situations, but because they were allegedly funding Al-Shabaab, magically disappeared. Eritrea, you know, magically became this, you know, country that was considered uh, a transitional country and, you know, moving past the conflict. Um, and this was purely because of their friendship and their close um relationship with Ethiopia so it also kind of goes to play that like the and again pointing out the fact that the situation the domestic situation in Eritrea never changed it hasn't changed the slightest and they have no intentions they've never said it's going to change either um it's the fact that that was completely disregarded just go against place into the part that I guess on that part of, of things is the more neocolonial side of the world doesn't even doesn't care about the lived experiences of the Eritreans if they did they wouldn't do all these things to support the Eritrean government um and kind of change their uh, approach to their, go- their government as well. So even the fact that the a lot of like leftist people in the US, like white leftist men actually <laughs> on Twitter, are speaking about these issues, they don't even, first of all, they don't look into details, they don't look at how the relationship has changed in the past years, um, they don't look at the level of support slash opposition that the, go- the US government has given, um, and they don't look at the difference between post and, uh, you know, pre, uh, sorry, peace deal. So, for me, that's another aspect of how the lived experience of Eritreans or people uh, in most cases are never considered. And I, my favorite example is always Libya and Qaddafi and how a lot of people across the world support Qaddafi um, a, because of the fact that he was a neo, like post-colonial, anti-colonial um, you know, leader. Um, but the lived experience of Libyans and also Africans living in Libya, refugees. Qaddafi was the first person to implement the deal with Italy to uh, make it as difficult as possible for, for refugees to leave Italy, uh, to leave sorry Libya to get to Europe, he was the first person to make to set the grounds for what's happening now in the hellhole that has become ref- the situation for refugees in Libya, but also the lived experience of um, you know toy soldiers that were um, sorry that's how you say it in Swedish uh, it's literally called toy soldiers, but also the lived experience of mercenaries who were brought from West Africa to do the dirty job of, of uh, the, the regime in in Libya at the time, their lived experiences and the lived experience of indigenous people in Libya, the lived experience of other Libya, like that has been completely neglected because the sole fact that Qaddafi was an like, anti-colonial, uh, post-colonial leader. So it's just like, both things can be true, be true at the same time. And that's, um, I guess, the, the summary of, of 
why this binary <laughs> is false and destructive and allows for uh, like abusive regimes to continue doing what they're doing on both end of side of things. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that's, thank you so much for, for putting it like that. Cause I think even as you're saying, it's, it's very obvious, but I think it really demands that interrogation and, and breaking apart. And especially because, you know, it, I think more than anything, it reveals the, just the disingenuity of, of people that can't think like that. And, and that, as, as you say, more than anything, they're not centering people um, and the experiences of, 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 you know, everyday life. So, you know, the third part of this podcast, generally the question that I'm trying to raise is, you know, if this binary is very much constructed in the way that clearly you've proven that it is post-colonial and neo-colonial, not really being separate um, or even opposites. Um, but, you know, the question I usually ask is, why then does it exist? And I suppose in this case, it might be very obvious, but maybe I can just, you know, give you a chance to answer that more directly. You know, what do you think that this binary really obscures? And in the case of Eritrea, particularly, um, you might even want to add, you know, what, what you think we could be doing as an international community or what you would like to see, whether that's people in the Eritrean diaspora, but also people, you know, not within it. How can we show solidarity? How can we support this, this movement that I think is being obscured? I think, well, like, like most binaries that exist to allow people to um, kind of do what they want to do with a really good justification. So by having good or bad or evil or, you know, I guess evil and good and all of those binaries, it allows people to say like, oh, but this is evil, so we can do this to help them. Or this is good, so this means we have to take out the evil to, you know, help them. Um, and I think in this case, it allows leaders, first of all, um, to do pretty much a lot of different things to their people um, by having either sides of the spectrum, like, in their favor. So I guess if it's a neo-colonial state, then they will continue to have the support of international um, institutions that are saying, oh, but they're doing development without democracy, though. But that's fine because they're doing development and that's what we want to see. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have, oh, but we're doing, um, you know, all these things. This is great for the people. But like, you know, uh, we cannot, you know, implement uh, human rights right now because of, you know, we are a new state or we are a social state and we have to focus on uh, economic, you know, e- you know, economic and uh, social rights and stuff like that right now. Um, so therefore, we're going to do this. Freedom comes later. You know, that's a European concept anyways. You know, this idea of justice. I don't know where that came from. European colonialism. Um, apparently so that's I mean they both kind of feed into it even when people Eritreans are saying like oh Eritreans are not ready for democracy um, Eritreans have had different forms of governance democratic governance they just weren't labeled democracy because that was a specific term that came out by from a place of the world where they had the ability to write that out and make that public knowledge but we've had diff- we have you know sets of and standards of dignity of human dignity of, of justice of, of democracy um, they just haven't been written out in that way so both play uh, play i think both sides of the binary allows governments to do whatever they want to do with support of different segments of society and of the world um and in the Eritrean context and i think in a lot of other contexts it allows them again to say that we're just resisting um the west and we're trying to do our best considering the society the world that we live in um and then they just put in all these extra things that have nothing to do with it that has nothing to do with the fight against neocolonialism in fact what they're doing is actually you know being a part of it um and I think it also kind of just to continue on that, it's just like, what is colonialism? Because is it just European countries, but is it also in the European context, for example, Eritrea has incredible relationships with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates and uh, with China, for example. So are they not considered colonial because they don't have a colonial past in Africa? Or um, is that something that we value because, you know, half, I guess China is still considered communist. Like, so what is this false you know, binary that is allowing people to do what they want to do just because, you know, Yeah, I think that's a really, really important question, though, like where, you know, where we assume colonialism to come from. Um, So then if I can ask you, 
you know, the final question I usually ask people is like, what, how would you prefer us to think about this struggle? Um, how can we, you know, how can we find out more about the work you're doing? Um, and how can we really amplify the voices of Eritrean people? What, you know, what, I think you've made the case really well. So this is really the actionable point, right? Like what, what can we be doing? I think, well, as you said, like a lot of people don't know about Eritrea and I think that's for different reasons. It's not just because um, they have interest in silencing it. I think way before the EU was like invested and loads of people were fleeing, like people don't care about Eritrea. Um, There's no reason for them to, unless they care about the people suffering. Um, There's no major like, you know, resources, whatever there. So like, it's not a country a lot of people know about. So our role as civil society, as people fighting for the people as kind of, you know, access to justice and democracy in the country is to just continue to make Eritrea a priority for the world. Um, and every time Eritrea is mentioned, you know, together with other world events, the Eritrean context is always, always, always ignored. Um, and that's something that's a big issue because, again, people don't know about the country. So why would customers who are reading the media want to read about the Eritrean perspective if they don't even know the country exists or have no interest in knowing how the people are doing? So I think a large part of it is just trying to learn as much as you can about Eritrea um, and then trying to join any kind of Eritrean campaigns that are running. So what our organization does and our main objective is to inform as many people as possible about what's going on in Eritrea and then translate that kind of access to information into action, as you said, actionable. Um, So like people actually just learning about what's going on in the country um, and then also deciding to do something about it. And we want to make it as easy as possible for people to do that. So I guess as a major plug for the organization, I would definitely urge uh, all of you listening to follow our page just because we do put out a lot of information, but we also put out a lot of campaigns that we're continuously running uh, with strategic targets um, and really trying to get as many people as possible behind different kinds of calls um, that we're making to different institutions. So it could be calling on the Eritrean regime specifically, or it can be calling on the US government to do something specifically, um, or it can be calling on the EU to change their migration policy specifically. So it's just us trying to find out the most strategic ways we, we can campaign and getting as many people behind us as possible. So I would definitely say that that's um, a really helpful way that people can get involved. But something that's a bit separate from that, and I still want to do the plug, is that, um, as I said, like a one third of the population left during the war of independence, but since Eritrea became independent, you know, countless people have fled the country. We don't know the exact numbers yet because of, you know, there hasn't been census and these numbers are not really being counted in an accurate way, but there's been tons and tons of people who fled the country. Um, and in that journey of, of flights, like both in the country, their circumstances were terrible. A lot of people were imprisoned. A lot of people were under these like horrific national service conditions. And since then, because it's a journey to safety in European or American countries are so uh, difficult, um, they experience years and years and years of trauma. And once they come here, um, here being Europe or the US or Canada, um, they're met with very little support. So we've started something called the Eritrean Refugee Center that tries to help Eritreans who are fleeing both in their journey here, but also when they arrive here. So it focuses on all aspects of their life. It could be emergency situations or it could be someone being detained on their way, like in Libya or in Israel or wherever they, wherever they might be. Um, or it can be just helping people write their CVs and apply to universities or um, find their kind of their dream job in 10 years and help help them make that roadmap and knowing where to do or what, how to get there. Um, so it's just like a volunteer, pretty much a volunteer network connecting Eritreans to one-to-one, free one-to-one services. Um, and we just need anyone who speaks English pretty much. Um, we have translators on board. So if you're willing, if you want to do some more like one-to-one help and actually like direct impact, I guess, that's something that we really, really need volunteers for. And I think that's not just important for their individual lives because obviously individually that matters a lot. But to remember that the future of Eritrea is its people and when everyone's fleeing and they're not getting adequate support, we're, um, you know, 
risking the future of our of our people and our country by not doing that properly. So I really urge everyone to get involved in any ways that I just mentioned. That's amazing. I'll put the links to um, both of those um, in the description of the podcast. And I think also, you know, it's really inspiring hearing all those different things you've mentioned as ways to kind of support or raise awareness and consciousness about um, what Eritrean people are experiencing. And I think I also just want to add that, you know, the work that you've done, I think it, it in of itself it has raised consciousness. You know, I know, I know it's raised my consciousness about this issue, but I think also it, it's, it's important because not only do, not only what you were saying about kind of prioritizing, you know, making Eritrea a priority for the global community, but I think also do, in doing that, you kind of, um, draw attention to the way that so many international um, forms of exploitation and oppression are connected. Um, so, you know, this isn't solely about like what, like what type of state is good or bad. It isn't solely about like, um, you know, refugees and asylum seekers. It isn't solely about imperialism. It's, it's all these things. And I think that's a really, Eritrea seems to provide to me, like just from thinking about this conversation, a really good example of like how we can't, eradicate one form of injustice without eradicating all of them um and i assume that you know th- there's no way you know even if we would did you know somehow topple the eritrean dictatorship you're right that there's going to be so many you know i'm sure we don't know the numbers of eritrean refugees and asylum seekers who are still you know making their way to europe or i'm sure you know detained in like british detention centers or you know in all sorts of other detention centers across the continent so the struggle for eritreans i suppose becomes everybody's struggle because this is a struggle about any type of injustice that we see in the modern world so i really appreciate you for kind of centering that here and it's helped me to definitely just think about you know the connections that i haven't been making um when it comes to eritrea so yeah, so I completely agree with that. And I think that also kind of goes back to why this binary fault is false, because we can still question these systems that, you know, people who are uh, considering themselves to be post-colonial and are attacking me for being neo-colonial are questioning, like the idea of the international economic system, the idea of, you know, how a lot of these loans are, um, you know, the are like structured and all these things that I know that Eritrea probably, you know, have struggles with and will have struggles with once we get rid of the dictatorship. So like that doesn't take away from anything. It's just saying that it's not just that. That is not just a problem. That in this situation, it isn't the problem because they're obviously not taking the loans and they're still oppressing their people. But that doesn't mean that the loans are good in itself. So like a big problem as well is that a lot of countries will then have like the complete opposite government being implemented. Or they're like, oh, we love the IMF and we love the World Bank. But like that's not necessarily the, the right decision either. Like So that's why, again, this binary is false because it just looks at like this versus that instead of like, oh no, let's mix, you know, let's mix this, let's take that out let's remove this so it's like let's edit this out um so i guess that's what you know again bringing in the fact that that is a problem itself in the same way as like the international migration system is a huge problem international migration laws they're very limited um and the same way with like aid packages all those things have problems so they all like by centering the people you can you can really see the flaws of all those systems and that's i think where you should start not by you know being behind or for one kind of system and then going the other way that's so powerful and i think that really moves us away from absolutist thinking, which is really at the heart of this entire podcast series. And I think as, you know, something that I find to always be um, something that I, I find myself saying, I guess, is, well, it turns out, you know, two things can be true at the same time. And I think that's, you know, the heart of this, right, is that post-colonial states and neo-colonial states can both be good and bad and problematic and, and like they not necessarily opposites at all. And I think that's, you've made that case really clearly. Um yeah, thank you so much, Vanessa. This has been really, really powerful. I feel like I've learned loads. Um, and I hope that people who are listening feel like there's a lot that they can also take on. And, you know, hopefully that this really contributes to that more nuanced thinking that this podcast is all about and contributes to, you know, us asking more questions, I guess, about everything. When we're presented with a narrative, whether it's about Eritrea, whether it's about anywhere, really asking 
you know, whether that's true, who it's true for, what else may also be true alongside it. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mansul Khan. Bye.